morning, everybody. Tell you what a what a news cycle we've been in, huh? <laughs> um, so um, right, we had the inauguration Friday, Women's March on Saturday. I don't know about you, but for me, I had family members attending the inauguration in one of the inaugural balls and having a prominent place in one of the women's marches in Oakland. Both of them will attend church this morning. So I want to encourage you. Um, as I've been thinking and praying through all the activity in our world, to know that we are equal and a family before God through Christ. So whatever's going on, your life, your family, my life, the government, whatever, we know we can come here, a, safe, a truly safe space, because we recognize our need before God. So today we're going to talk about an um, interesting story in our Risk Taker series. But, um, you know, we're, we're, we're week four, I think, of Risk Taker series. And we're looking at these stories in the Bible where people are taking risks and God uses them in amazing ways. And I'm afraid that some of us during this series see, okay, there are some exceptional people God uses in the Bible to do exceptional things. Listen, Josh, I'm barely holding on in my life. <laughs> I'm barely holding on in my marriage, in my finances, at my job, at my health. Look, it's cool to see some of these spiritual superheroes and what God does for them. But look, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just day to day. Well, there's some good news for you this morning in the story of Noah and the ark that as we dig a little bit under the surface of the story of Noah and the ark, we see that God is not looking for heroes. He's looking for servants. And the risk that he requires from you and from me is daily obedience. And that's it. So before we jump in, let me uh, uh, settle our hearts in prayer. Lord God, you are so good. You, you are so good, and you are a God of love, and you look down on our uh, anxieties, and you smile at us, and you say, children, come here. Come to your father. It's going to be okay. And Lord, as we look at um, Noah and the Ark, a story that um, is tremendous, would you show us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a new understanding of how you build your world, how you build your kingdom. Lord, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to look at the story of Noah and the ark from Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, if you uh, attended any Sunday school or vacation Bible school as a child, you will probably know a little bit about the story of Noah and the ark and all the children's literature. And, you know, Judah's got a couple little children's Bibles that a lot of the pictures, the depictions of Noah look something like you'll see on the screen, Right? everybody's happy that, you know, there's always two happy giraffes with their head stuck out one of the windows. And it looks like Noah is the president of the Humane Society. And he's, <laughs> he's taking the uh, zoo animals out for a pleasure cruise on Lake Erie. But the tendency, I think, when we see some of these children's depictions, we implicitly think that the story of Noah and the Ark is a children's story. Noah and the Ark is not a children's story. 
There's actually wood carvings from a, a 19th century artist named Gustave Doré that properly depict what Noah's, what this event would look like. And I, de- I, I, I contemplating it, put it on the screen, but it's too graphic. I, I couldn't in good conscience show it. Because the story of Noah and the ark is about a mighty and powerful God who judges evil in an extraordinary way. It's one part terrifying, one part encouraging, but wholly brings a sense of awe and reverence. It's not a children's story. So look with me at Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah and the ark. I'm going to be jumping around chapters 6, 7, and 8. We'll start in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord saw, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. See, Scripture tells us that every intention in the heart of men and women were evil continually. From Adam and Eve to Noah, there was a holy corruption throughout the whole world. Imagine a world where there's no justice. There's no law. Evil is never punished. That there's no way to protect your family from the deepest, darkest urges of anyone except for whatever you can pick up with your hand, whatever club, or whatever rock or spear you can defend yourself with. I mean, imagine the worst of ISIS-controlled Syria or Boko Haram-controlled Nigeria or pre-civil rights American South. Imagine every intention of everyone's heart was bent toward evil. Horrifying. That um, image is horrifying. But scripture tells us there is one man, his name was Noah, who was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and scripture says that he walked with God. And God, who is a righteous and good God, looked down onto the amount of evil and wickedness in the world. And he says, it says it hurt his heart to do it, but he said, I have to punish evil. It's my moral obligation. I'm the only one who is all-knowing, who knows all the evil. I'm the only one who's all-powerful, who can punish all the evil, and I have to do it. Look with me, verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, 
I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Hop down to verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then, Noah, then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So God is to judge the earth through a flood. And he tells Noah to build this humongous boat to house two of every animals and Noah's family to survive this event. And there is a group in Kentucky who've actually built a life-size ark. <laughs> and you'll see some pictures on the screen. Um, this huge boat, life-size ark, that you can actually go to Kentucky and see for $40, uh, parking not included. And you could go inside, you can check out the museum, and there's actually, I think, someone told me there's plans for a water park. That's some like ironic joke. I don't know. That's what I heard. It, but it is giant. It is this huge, huge thing. And scripture tells us that Noah built this ark. And then he said, all right, go into the ark. Noah, you and your family. He goes into the ark. The door is shut. And nothing happens for seven days. I can promise you, Noah heard about it from his family, Right? Until one day it began to pour. Like nothing, like the worst thunderstorm we've seen in Ohio. Double that and for 40 days straight. Scripture tells us that underwater water tables burst out from the ground and the earth began to completely fill with water. And here the tone of our story pivots from cartoon Noah to the most significant and unimaginable ecological event in all of history. Everyone died. Men, women, children, animals. They all died. And here God's great power, his justice, his strength is on full display as he judges the world of their wickedness. And only one man and his family were spared. After the flood, about 300 days on the ark, the ark landed, the waters receded, Noah and his family leave the ark and God puts a rainbow in the sky and says, never again will I destroy and judge the earth as I have done in this way. Now, if you're like me, looking at the story of Noah, two competing impulses rise up in my heart. The first impulse is like, man, I want to be a righteous man before God, just like Noah. I want to walk blamelessly before God. I want to be that one guy who stands up in the face of wickedness and does the right thing. I want God to use me like Noah. But there's another impulse that, at least in my heart, begins to rise up. 
It's that impulse of questioning God's acts. No, God, so you're telling me that you literally had to flood the earth and like babies and mothers and children and they all had to be judged? And maybe you, in your life, you've seen what theologians call the problem of evil. All this evil in our world. And like, but, but, but how could God judge in such an extreme way? And maybe you have experienced this impulse, like um, Ivan in the famous uh, novel, The Brothers Karamazov, who upon hearing about evil, he says, if this is the price of admission, I will kindly return my ticket. Well, to be honest, both of those impulses rise up in my heart. And I would like to address both of them this morning as best as I can by answering these three questions. First, who is the main character of this story? Second, what does this story tell us about us? And thirdly, what is the good news of this story? All right, first, who is the main character of this story? Trick question. It's God. God is the main character of this story. It is about God, about his character, his judgment, his power, and his strength. Did you know that the entire Bible is primarily and first about God? It's not first about ethics or morality. It's not necessarily about you and me. It's about God revealing himself, who he really is. This character of this story, it is about God. And it's funny because God knew, I think, that as, like in our American culture, we have what sociologists call a hero culture. We think the world changes by these great men and women doing these extraordinary things. So there's this one class of super people, and then there's everybody else, and we're beholden to the super people to do great things. Now, other than that being a historical fiction, that's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not how Jesus said he would build his kingdom. You see, God knew that we would take some of these Old Testament characters and try to raise them on the pedestal higher than they should be. See, in Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and the first part of chapter 9, Noah doesn't even say anything. He says not a word and is all God speaking. So the story is primarily about God. In order to make his point clear that Noah isn't the hero of this story, he does two things. First, the moment that Noah walks off the ark, he offers up a sacrifice to God. Now, in the Old Testament, a sacrifice is a symbolic way for a person to recognize that they have sin, and though they should be destroyed like this animal, God is a merciful God. So even Noah knew that he had sin in his life. See, Scripture says Noah was blameless, but in the Old Testament, blameless does not mean sinless. It just means there's no consistent pattern of sin that Noah was not repenting of. The second thing God does, just to double down, to make clear this story is not about how awesome Noah is. is, So Noah and his family get off the ark. He makes a sacrifice. Next passage, it says Noah plants a vineyard. 
He makes some grapes. Crushes up the grapes, makes wine, gets so drunk, he passes out naked in his tent. One of his sons goes and sees his naked, drunk dad and makes fun of him to his brothers. And then Noah gets up and curses his son. It's like some weird episode of Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. (laughs) This is not the paragon of morality that we should follow. This is an example of someone who's being obedient before God. But the person we should follow, the hero of every story, is Jesus. Every Old Testament story, every New Testament story, it, the hero is ultimately Jesus. The first thing Noah says is, cursed be you to his son. Noah is not the hero of the story. So who is the main character of the story? It is God. Second, what does the story tell us about us? You see, since God is all-powerful, he didn't need Noah to accomplish his purposes. But rather, he invited Noah in to his redemptive plan so that Noah could reap the rewards of what God is already doing. And we have to think, well, how did Noah enter into God's redemptive plan? Well, you know, he, was a, he built the ark. Yes, but God, Noah entered in long before that. We see Noah was the only one in all the world to live according to the way God had designed humans to live. I tell you, that's risky. Everyone was living a life based on power and hate and greed and oppression. But Noah said, no, I'm going to live according to love, joy, peace, love of God, and love of others. Talk about a risk. I mean, a lot of you, your situation is not a lot like, unlike Noah, right? You live in a culture, a work environment, a home environment, an education environment that is everything but based on love of God and neighbor, right? You, maybe you are a business person and the culture you live in is profits at all costs. You could do whatever you need to do to make that sale. Doesn't matter if you little white lies, little fibs, pull some arms, sell things that don't even need to be sold to someone who's unsuspecting. But the pressure is on, and it's risky to be like Noah to say, no, I'm according to a different ethic. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and every mommy blog out there says, you're not good enough, you're not doing the good job, you need to do better, better, better. And it's risky to say, look, before God, I am accepted, I am received, God knew the children he's gonna give me and I will walk in obedience as best as I can. That's risky. Maybe you're a student or you work in higher education and the pressure to perform, the pressure to publish is crushing you and you're cutting out everything in your life, friends, family, health, just to succeed in this one area. But God is calling you to make sure everything you do is according to his priorities. And he is responsible to bless you. You see, Noah lived a life of risky obedience every day. And God calls you and me to a daily and risky obedience. You see, God does not call us to greatness. Do you realize that? 
Nowhere in the Bible does God call you to be some great and exceptional person. He calls you and me to daily obedience. Like we can handle today. And as we make those diligent daily steps to obey God and his word, we become exceptional people by God's grace. That doesn't mean we get on TV. <laughs> that doesn't mean people write a biography about us, but it, re- it means we come more like Jesus, the most exceptional one to ever live. And I tell you what, if you understand this, this is good news, such good news. You can handle every day the simple steps of obedience because you have the Holy Spirit. And as we step every day in walk of obedience, he will show you what he wants you to do. See, we always jump to the end. I work with young adults all the time. What do I do with my life? Uh, what do I go to college? Okay, I have to everything, every plan, every decade needs to be planned by the week. And I, I, God needs to show me what he wants me to do it is for my life. All right, here, here's a Bible. Just do whatever you find in here. You don't need some special appendix that says, Josh Stone, plan for life. You, know, you just take the Bible, you're obedient to God's commands, and he will show you the next step to take. Man, I don't know about you, but for me in my life, that is really, really good news. So what does this story tell us about us? It tells us that the risk God requires is just daily obedience. The good, another one of the good things about God's way he builds his kingdom and he shows himself to us is that so, so often the next step in your life and in my life is really clear. See, in this risk takers series, we've been talking about taking risks, taking spiritual risks, taking relational risks, financial risks, and conversational risks. And in those areas of our life, we're encouraging you to take those risks. I think the next step of obedience for you is pretty clear. And I want to challenge you in a few areas. And I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord, you got to do this. But I am going to ask this. Every challenge I make to you, all I'm asking you is to do this. Say, God, do you want me to take this step? And I'll let him sort that out, okay? First, I'm going to encourage you to take a spiritual step risk by taking a Sabbath. See, we, we're all busy. You realize that? We, we all experience very hectic schedules with work, family, and friends. And it's very risky to not use every single day available to you to get stuff done. It's very risky to not go to not go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's risky to set aside one day special day to rest and tell God, God, you can do in six days what I can do in seven days. It's very risky. But I will tell you, in my short life, I've seen so many exceptional people put the pedal to the metal, and in the age of 40, they either burn out, they fail out, or they burn their family out. God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for me. And he's designed something called a Sabbath that even his very own son took part in, right? If Jesus needed it, we probably need it. So I want to, I'm just challenging you to ask God, God, do you want me to take a Sabbath? 
Second uh, risk is a relational risk. Now, the Bible over and over again uh, calls us to be in Christian community. And we do that here in our church through life groups. And some of us say, okay, well, Josh, I'm, I'm an introvert. That's great. You're an introvert. That doesn't absolve you from the commands of God to be in Christian community. It's, it, being a, in a life group is a pattern that Deborah and I have always, we've always been a part of a life group. And we have even some people in, our, in, the, in the room now are part of our life group. We love our life group. It's a huge way that we are blessed by the body of Christ. But it's also important to remember, maybe you're doing okay. Maybe you feel like you're doing fine. I don't really need a, a, a community. I'm good. A life group's not just to receive something. It's also to give something. So you've been made in a certain way. You have different a testimony, story, skills, abilities, spiritual gifts that other people need. And God requires us to be in Christian community, not only so that you can be served by others, but also that you can serve others. There's a life group out there. If you're not in a life group, there's a life group out there that needs you. So I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, do you want me to make the risky step to be in a life group? Third risk, financial risk. See, our culture holds the assumption that everything we have is for our consumption. Okay, it's the consumption assumption. And uh, the best data we have is that three per, uh, Americans give about 3% of their income to nonprofits. And churches are a subset of that. So but in the words of the great theologian, Chad Allen, that is weak sauce. <laughs> Especially as followers of Christ. So I'm going to challenge you to believe what Jesus says in Luke 6. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I'm going to challenge you to take the risky step of obedience, to obey what Jesus says here, and increase your giving this year by 1%. I'm not saying like half. I'm saying 1%. And if you're like, man, you just want our money, give it to another church. But what we want for you at CVC is you become more like Jesus. God will take care of our budget. But still, you can, we, we appreciate your giving, okay? <clears throat> Finally, conversational risk. We talk a lot about life houses uh, where we intentionally pray, bless, and share with the eight houses around us. Now, I have a confession to make as a pastor of CVC. So we, we, we have really engaged in life houses and these houses, two there, two there, across the street. But there's the, the house kind of catty corner. We've yet to really, I've yet to really engage. I don't see the guy a lot. Well, last night, I've been praying about it. God's convicting me. I took Judah on a walk, and I see my neighbor out there picking up something from his, his driveway, and I knew God was saying, he wasn't saying, you need to grab that guy and say, turn or burn. Like, he was just saying, <laughs> go over there and meet him, re-meet him. So I walked over there and talked with him and re-met my neighbor. He actually came into my house and showed him some of the updates we're doing in our house, and now I know how to pray for him better. He shared something with me, and now I can, okay, I pray for Bob better. So I'm going to challenge you. Do you know all your life houses, your dorm 
mates, your apartment neighbors, your neighborhood house neighbors. Will you take that daily step of obedience? Just re-meet one of them this week. I'm just, all I'm saying is ask God if he wants you to do that. Will you take those daily risky steps of obedience? Now, I've, um, I've kind of addressed that first impulse that we talked about earlier in the message. The impulse, we want to be like Noah. We want to be used by God. We want God to do amazing things in our lives and through our lives. What about that other impulse, that serious God, seriously God, I thought you were a God of love. Well, it's really important to remember that the God of the Old Testament is the exact same God as the God of the New Testament, right? There was no shift change in between the Testaments. And Jesus makes this clear. In Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching about his second coming. It was called the coming of the Son of Man, which was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And he says this in Matthew 24. It says, but concerning that day, Jesus' second coming, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, Jesus Christ himself says that God still judges. God still punishes evil. And one day, God will judge the world again. But there's a difference between the day of Noah and today. See, in the day of Noah, people were unaware of the coming judgment. Today, we know a judgment is coming. In Noah's day, Noah built an ark to save just a small handful of people. But today, through Christ, God has built us an ark the door is open wide and all may come in. There is eternal room underneath the covering of the judgment of God through Christ. You see, in Noah's day, he was saved through nailing a few boards on the side of a boat with a couple nails. Today, we are saved by God himself being nailed to a couple pieces of wood and lifted high above on the cross. And he died, he rose again, and now the open tomb calls you and me forth into his protection. That there is a day of judgment coming. All evil will be punished. But through Christ, we can have our sins already forgiven. So when the day of judgment comes, we look to God, not as righteous judge, but as father. And he invites us into his family. That happens through putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And many, many of us here, that first step of obedience needed to be taken this morning. Will you say, Jesus, I repent of my sins. I need your protection. I want to come underneath your righteousness. 
And for the Christians, brothers and sisters, I know and I, I hear all the time as a pastor where you're praying for people. You want them to know the Lord. You want them to experience a relationship with God that you have. And you've been praying for your brother or your child or your mom and your neighbor for decades and decades. And you just think, will they ever believe? Well, I've got good news for you. In 2 Peter, Scripture tells us that Noah, through his daily obedience, became a herald of of righteousness to the world. You, through making those simple steps of daily obedience, becoming more like Christ, your life begins to become a herald of God's righteousness to the world. Maybe the step of obedience you need to take is recognize my life is the canvas with which my family will see the gospel painted. And every step of obedience, when you become more like Christ, and your life is changed, your heart is changed, you become more giving, you become more open, more honest, you become a shining light at your work site, in your family, you then are heralding the righteousness of God by your life. That's how God builds his kingdom. Don't you know the scriptures? Jesus came not, not, a, not a, a reed would he break. He came tender and with love and with kindness and he calls us to be like him and draw all people to himself. So Christian, be encouraged that your life, even as you share with your words, becomes a herald of God's righteousness. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that we don't have to pay for our sins, but you, through your son Jesus, through applying his righteousness, we can have our sins forgiven. We can have our sins paid for. Lord, thank you that you are not some absentee landlord. You are not a crooked judge, but you judge rightly. Lord, help us to take those risky steps of obedience every day to become more like your son, to take those risks relationally, financially, conversationally, and spiritually so that we become more like your son, become a herald of righteousness just like Noah. Lord, thank you that you don't you aren't looking for heroes. You're just looking for servants. Help us to be better servants of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.